BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to Episode 9 of I Am Steve R. I promise to be a little more regular with you guys. And uh, this past month, I've been finishing up... uh, my fourth book, it's a book of poetry, and there's some recovery stuff in there, and then, uh, you know, a story about how me and my dad became, you know, best friends when I became a husband and father in my own right. I think we can fully appreciate our parents, and we become parents ourselves, and, you know, we kind of take them off the pedestal of being superheroes and kind of see them as humans, and so I finished that up here last week, and so I'm going to have a little more time, so I'm going to try to be a little more regular. You guys reach out to me and say, hey, Steve, when's the next episode? And I have every intention of uh, getting those things together for you, but sometimes time gets away from me between, you know, covering college athletics and writing books. Sometimes my time is at a bit of a premium. And so I don't want this to ever seem like a chore. And so I wait until I'm kind of mentally and spiritually fit and ready to to talk, you know, down to earth and in a relatable conversational tone about recovery. So here we are today, and it is a busy day. But I wanted to set aside some time for us to kind of talk about step two today. There are a lot of things about step two that are kind of a stumbling block for many people because we begin to look at all of this through the lens of religion, and that's not necessarily how this is designed. You know, AA at its core is a program based on spiritual principles, but it is not necessarily based on Christianity per se. There is the concept of the higher power. And so when I first began to work through the steps, I thought, you know, I don't want these people to you know, try to influence me or recruit me to be a part of some cult. And so it took me some time, I guess, to kind of fully appreciate what step two was all about. So let's take some time now and let's read the step and we'll kind of break it down. I'll offer my thoughts on this and then we can kind of all move forward. And my hope is to have you guys another episode next week. That's the plan anyway. I've got a lot more time now where my mind is... Uh, kind of at rest and I can kind of meditate on some of these things and kind of speak intelligently and really kind of speak from the heart. But step two uh, in, the, in the AA from the big book, and you guys are somewhat familiar with this, and if you're not, let me just kind of break it down to you in layman's terms. But uh, step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the word power 
is capitalized. Again, that's came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, there are two parts to this. The first part of it is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. Now, that was the part that uh, was actually pretty easy for me because I, I firmly believe in my heart that there is a higher power. There is a higher purpose in life. There is something out there that has put a plan together. You know, it's not like God, per se, just kind of created the earth and just kind of left it spinning. And so that part of it was easy for me to accept. Now, early on, I didn't want anybody preaching to me, and I was not quite ready to acknowledge the fact that the higher power, you know, was kind of the God of creation. And that's just me being honest with you. At that point in my life, it just kind of helped me to believe that, you know what, I don't know if the God that some people in church talk about actually existed. That's how I felt at the time. And there are a lot of people, of course, that, uh, you know, as, I, as the great you know, Christian singer Carmen once said, is, you know, one of the biggest tragedies in life is that, and the stumbling block for, for Christianity is that, you know, Christians who profess Jesus in their, with their lips on Sunday and then go about their regular lives six days a week. I'm kind of paraphrasing there. And so for me, I just didn't identify with a lot of those people because I, I, I would see what they said and then I saw how they lived. And so I thought, you know, if, if that's what that holds for me, I don't really want any part of that. You know, I don't want to be a person that is a hypocrite. I don't want to be a person um, that, you know, says one thing and then does another. It's like, well, you know, on Sunday, you know, let's all just hold hands and sing just, you know, just as I am. And then we go out and live like heathens the rest of the week. You know, I just, to me, the whole thing was very disingenuous. But in my core belief in my heart and in my soul, I knew that there was something more, that there was something greater than me, that there was a power out there that was in charge. It may not be an authoritative power per se, but I knew that there was something, some entity that created the earth, created mankind, and there had to be a purpose to it all. And for some reason, that really helped me to believe there was something greater than ourselves. You know, for me, I just kind of felt like there are so many people out there that kind of live a life with which there is no God. And as I've heard said before, if you're living life as if there is no God, you better hope you're right. Well, as I began to mature spiritually, and I began to get a little more on the business side of step two, and get on the sane side of step two, I began to realize, you know what, that you know, the God of my understanding maybe didn't match necessarily <clears throat> what was preached in some churches in America on Sunday. Now, I'm, not, I'm not anti-religion in any respect. There are a lot of people out there that are very devout in their beliefs. I believe you know, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and uh, came to earth, uh, born of a virgin, uh, died on the cross, and was raised again three days later. I, I believe those things, and I believe he's coming back. You don't have to. That may not be what works for you. One of my best friends in recovery in the very beginning, he made a great comment. He said, you know, if you think God rides a Harley and smokes Roy Tan cigars, and if that works for you, then so be it. And that's how I was initially. It was kind of like, you know, I, I didn't necessarily see my higher power as necessarily, you know, the evangelical higher power. Because there were so many of the sheep that kind of, to me, led me away from the shepherd. And so, you know, once I kind of got to a point that I felt like that I could know God and feel God and have a relationship with God, 
I began to focus less on those people. Because at the end of the day, it's not about those people. It's about me and my relationship with a higher power. And so I sought a better understanding with my higher power through prayer and meditation. You know, a lot of that too is just, you know, it's as simple as us kind of being alone and find, finding a, a still, quiet place. And it's kind of reaching out. You know, and for me, it was, it was very easy to say, you know, to, to address the higher power as God. And say, so, you know, God, this is what I've done. I have made a mess of my life. And I can't fix it through my own means. I've got to have your support, your love, and your guidance to get back on track. And in many ways, I was kind of selfish about the higher power. You know, I thought, you know what? I can't worry about what everybody else thinks of me or or my religious beliefs or my uh, beliefs about the higher power concept. This is my higher power. I have a relationship, unlike any other, with my higher power. And so... I didn't feel the need to have to explain that to other people. I didn't feel the need to have to try to convert other people. I didn't have a, you know, this undesirable need to uh, address other people and say, you know what, you have to believe like me, you know, you're going to hell or you're not going to stay sober or you're not going to have a happy life. It was very, 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 very self-centric for me. I just focused on the fact that there was a concept of a higher power that was easy for me to accept and that I could have an audience with this higher power whenever I chose to. Now, again, for me, it was God. It was the God of creation. For you, it might be something totally different. I will never judge anybody for that. Some people choose the, 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 the recovery process. They choose the spirit that fills the rooms of AA and say, you know what, that's, that's my higher power. You know, maybe it's our collective strength. Maybe that's what you can believe in today. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that in order to stay sober, that you've got to tithe 10%, get baptized, and uh, put on your Sunday best and go to church every Sunday. I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I know that works really well for a lot of people, but it may not work for you. And that's completely okay. That is absolutely okay. There's nobody out there that has any definitive proof that their value system is better than anybody else's. And so I don't believe in this whole relative morality thing, but I will tell you when it comes to your recovery, you have to find what works for you. Now, I believe this is a program of complete abstinence, but I also believe that a belief in a power greater than ourselves can remove many of those cravings. And so I shared that because I think that's the reason, that's the first part of the step, is it to believe, you know what, my life is irreparably wrecked, and through my own means and ability, I cannot fix it. I cannot do this alone. And it really gave me some comfort to know that I wasn't alone. That I had other people that were similarly afflicted. But also there was somebody out there, there was a a being or an entity that had my best interest at heart. And I believe that if you seek the will of God, or your higher power, whatever you choose to call them, if you seek their counsel, that you'll get it. Now, I'm also a firm believer in this, and I've heard this said in an AA meeting once, and uh, I don't think I'm breaking any traditions by sharing it with you here now, is that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, but not one thing more. Your God is not going to do the things for me that I am capable of doing. God's, God's not going to give me a living. I have to get up and go work for it. You know, God's not going to give me recovery. I have to get up and go work for it. But God will give me the tools, the guidance, the motivation, you to seek those things and complete those tasks. And so 
I want to make sure that that's abundantly clear. That there has to be this inalienable belief that there is a power greater than yourself. Whatever you choose to call it, whatever label you choose to put on it, it is a tenet of our recovery to know and understand that there is a plan, there is an author of that plan, and that we can have an audience with the author of that plan. It's very, very important. Because when I got out of this whole concept of the higher power, when I became estranged from God through my own decisions, uh, that's when life got difficult. You know, it's kind of like, I heard, I heard a guy say once, it's kind of like that cow in the pasture with the barbed wire fence. Now, that cow is, you know, five, six, seven hundred pounds. And you forgive, don't laugh at me, I'm not a country boy, right? So I may be completely off on the, on the measurables. But that barbed wire fence can't hold the cow if the cow really wants to get out of it. If the cow is willing to lean and lean and lean and lean against that barbed wire, they can separate it from the fence post to knock the fence down and get outside the protection of the fence. That's kind of how I see the higher power concept. It's like there are times in life that God will put some barbed wire in my way to remind me that I'm kind of getting outside of his will. But if I want to get out, I can. I can continue to lean against it, and I can continue to have those consequences. But let's be honest with ourselves here today. You know, our physical and present consequences are the manifestation of our own mental defect. Because of our own thinking, because how we live and how we see life, if we are doing things inappropriately, if we are living a life outside of our value system, there will be consequences. And so there are all these little reminders. And I used to share when I, sp- when I spoke is that, you know, I, I have had a wake-up call every time in my life that I chose to do something that was wrong for me. Every time, without fail. Now, a lot of times I hit the snooze button, and eventually I just ripped the alarm clock out of the wall. Because I didn't care anymore, because the consequences just weren't enough at the time to get me back in the fence. And so I hope that analogy makes a little sense for you. God puts up the barbed wire fence, the higher power puts up the barbed wire fence, but I can get out of the fence whenever I want to. It's a choice for me. It may be painful, it may leave some scars, but it is ultimately my decision if I want to get out of the fence. If I want to get out there and go play in the road, I can. I just choose not to. Because I know that there are consequences between now and then. And that's the whole thing about that fence. It's like, you know, that cow that brushes up against a barbed wire fence, they get a sharp reminder that, hey, this is not the way. Let's get away from trouble here. But the consequences, once I get outside of the protection of that fence, are far worse than the barbed wire fence. If I get out there in the road and the truck runs over me, then I'm dead. And so these consequences and, uh, are, are a reminder that there is an easier, softer way to live life. I'm a firm believer in the phrase that your pain is a gift. Your pain is a gift. Because it reminds you that you're alive. And it reminds you that, you know what, these things I need to stay away from. You know, there is some pain that rests upon our shoulders that is not of our making. But the majority of it is really a consequence of our own behavior. At least it was for me. There are some people out there that are good people. The bad things happen to them through no fault of their own. Some would say, oh, it's karma. It's not always. There are bad things that happen to good people. And when you reach the end of your own understanding in those moments, there is where you find the higher power. You know, I have taken this as far as I can take it, 
And so in order for me to finish the deal, I have to have some type of supernatural intervention. And that's where God comes in, at least for me. Now let's talk about the second part of this, because to, to me, I believe this is really the business part of step two. Believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, here's the problem with that. When you first hear that, you say, well, insanity, but I'm not crazy. Well, maybe not. But maybe we have exhibited some insane behavior. And if we had not, we wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't be listening to the show. We wouldn't be in the halls of Celebrate Recovery or AA or NA or, or wherever 12-step program you're part of. There is a mental defect in us. Much of that comes, you know, from the avoidance of a relationship with a higher power. That's why this all kind of works together. And so in order for us to be restored to sanity, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we have exhibited some insane behavior. When I first heard that phrase, I thought, oh, my goodness, now i got to go to therapy? I'm crazy? Am I going to have to go to Whitfield? Am I going to have to be put on medication? Because there is such a stigma about mental disease. There are a lot of people that think, you know what, uh, and I, I read an analogy earlier today. It says, you know what, you break your arm, everybody is happy to come sign your cast. But when people find out that you have some sort of mental defect, people run. They do. People are scared of mental illness. There's nothing wrong with having a mental defect and then seeking help from that. That's a huge part of the recovery process. It's just like going back to step one. You know, until we acknowledge that we have a problem, we can't fix the problem. And as I've said on the show before, you know, we would learn a lot more from our mistakes if we weren't so busy denying that we made them. And so now that we've acknowledged that we have a problem and that we, there is somebody greater than ourselves that can help us fix the problem, we have to kind of acknowledge the fact that we have done some things that are kind of beneath our character and beyond our morals and in many ways insane. Let me give you some examples of what I went through and some of the decisions that I made. So let's break this down as simply as we can. So going to, let's say, the the shady part of town, and I I say that as nicely as I can. I I, I mean no, uh, you know, judgment about any of that. But let's just say that I go to a high crime area of town seeking some type of pleasure and so I went to a housing project one time and I just pretty much walked up to a stranger and said hey I'm looking for weed or hey I'm looking for this hey I'm looking for that somebody's a complete stranger to me and they goes oh yeah well so and so sells some well then they go and facilitate the transaction and so here I am in an area of town I'm not familiar with talking to strangers that in turn take my money and then you know, put me in contact with, with drug dealers. Okay, that is not sane thinking. That is not sane behavior. Normal people don't do those things. And so that's one of those things I look at in hindsight, and I say, you know what, that was pretty crazy. I really put myself at risk there because what stopped those guys from robbing me? Well, I guess the hope of re- return business, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm not from that area. They know that I'm not from that area. I don't know anybody down there. Nobody is going to testify on my behalf if there is drama. But yet I wanted the drug so badly that that's what I did. There was another situation 
I'm not proud of this by any stretch of the imagination. I had somebody that ripped me off uh, on a sheet of acid one time. And uh, I went to their place of employment and waited for them out to, to go take out the trash and basically assaulted them to get my money back. You know, normal people do not behave that way. That is insane thinking. That is insane behavior. It is criminal behavior on both fronts. Buying, possessing drugs, and then, you know, basically committing simple assault to remedy the situation. That's not sane behavior. And there are so many relationships that I got involved with that were so incredibly toxic. I look back in hindsight and said, I must have been crazy to get involved with them. And you know what? They were crazy to get involved with me because I was riding down the rails on the crazy train, to coin a phrase. And so before we can get to the business part of step two, we have to acknowledge that we have exhibited behavior that borders on insanity. And some people hear that word and they think, oh, well, that's not me. No, no, it's you. It is. It is. It is you. I know people that will take their entire paycheck and basically give it to a stranger in order to get their medicine. And that's from a street pharmacist, not the Walgreens pharmacy. That's insane behavior. I know people that won't pay their rent won't pay their child support, won't buy their kids shoes, won't buy their kids clothes, won't buy their kids school supplies because they are so addicted to something that is what's driving the train. You know, is once we make the decision to become parents, and in many respects it is very much a decision, you know, we begin to take on, you know, the, the care and the well-being of that child, and we have to put their existence and their lives and their health and safety above our own. And so if we are compromising that responsibility in an effort to go get higher drunk, that is insane thinking. Normal people do not act that way. And there are so many people that they, they, get, they get restored to sanity, and they look in hindsight and say, I cannot believe I neglected my children like this. There are other relationships, be they romantic or matrimonial or whatever, it's, you know, look, this is how I treated this person. You know, I was out in bars and, you know, I was facilitating these uh, extramarital affairs and things of that nature. I was putting myself at risk. I was putting my own health and the health of my partner at risk because there was some self-esteem issue, some void in my life that had to be filled. Okay, that is insane thinking. And if we work ourselves through this, if we really take a real inventory of our lives and begin to kind of look back, you know, once we cross the wall, and you've heard me say it before, there for every addict and alcoholic, there is a crisis, real or imagined, that pushes us through that barrier, through that barbed wire fence, where we go from, hey, you know, we're kind of a problem drinker or a recreational drug user, and all of a sudden we're an addict. We were probably already genetically predisposed, but there is something that happens that kind of breaks our give-a-crap meter completely off. And so once we kind of begin to come to grip with that, we can kind of look back and say, what, what was I thinking? And I think that's one of those things we, we talk about in their physical consequences. There are some of us that went to jail. There are many of us that lose relationships. There are many of us that have failed marriages and you know, there's some of us that, uh, you know, have some physical impairments due to our drinking or our using. Some of us get DUIs. All of that is tangible. 
All of that are things that you can see and feel immediately. And then when you sober up, you feel it even more because you realize what you've lost. But the next step in the recovery process is when we go back and look at all the things, the consequences that we suffered mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that maybe didn't manifest themselves in physical form. You know, a loss of value, a loss of self-esteem, a loss of morality, you know, a loss of our sense of self. And so you begin to look back and say, listen, you know, look at how little I valued myself. Look at the risk that I put upon myself and my family and those that love me. I risked all of that. And when you begin to think about compromising and risking the relationships with those who truly love you. And I don't mean these, you know, these temporarily single-serving relationships and things like that. And there's always these acquaintances that uh, you get infatuated with and think, I'm so glad this person's my friend, but they don't truly have your best interest at heart. It's just kind of a friendship of convenience. Maybe you work together. I mean, it's like I think there's so many people who look back in, in hindsight and say, man, this person was such a great friend to me. Well, well did you ever hear from them again when you quit working together? Did you ever hear from them again when you quit dating their friend? Well, then they weren't your friend. They were your acquaintance. But I'm talking about the people that are truly down for you, the, the ride-or-die folks, shall we say, the people that when you're in the gutter, their heart is in there with you. Those people. Not those people that hear that you're having trouble and say, oh, what a shame. I should call them. I'm talking about the people that when you go missing three or four days at a time, that they're out there walking the streets trying to find you, that their whole world stops until they find you that they can't sleep a wink at night because they're worried about you those people when you begin to think about breaking their hearts and putting them at risk and it's one of the things too you know that I, I thought about for many years like um you know I, my mom never got that phone call thank god she never got that phone call that, hey your your kid's uh your kid's dead or your kid's had a car accident or your kid's overdosed she never got that call. She did get the call that I was in jail. And I think in hindsight, she'd much rather have that call than the one that I was in the hospital not going to make it. But one of the things that I work with with Jim C., I was like making amends, and I was just thinking, you know what, how do I make that up to her? You know, how, do I, how, do I, how can I give her a good night's rest at night? And he said, you know, Steve, here's the deal. Why don't you call her every night when you're home for the night? When you get home from a meeting or you get home from work and they say, hey, listen, Mom, I love you. I just want to let you know I'm going to bed. I'm home. It's one thank you for loving me. And so I started making those phone calls, and in time, I, I really wanted to make them. I think probably initially my mom thought, well, why is he calling me? But I did. I called her. And I know that she was probably able to sleep at night knowing, you know what, he's doing okay, at least for today. I know that he's fine. I know that he's safe. And so to me, that's a step towards sanity, is that I want to be accountable to you I, because I know that you love me and I want you to know that I'm okay I'm acknowledging your commitment to me and my welfare and so I want you to know I want to validate your belief in me by letting you know that I am okay and that you're not going to get a phone call tonight that I've been in a car accident or, or whatever I'm not out there you know chasing some riotous pleasure tonight and so those, to me, are the steps towards sane thinking. You know, it's not as simple as isolating to yourself and just not just communicating with people. 
I don't believe that recovery is a process of introversion. I think it is something that teaches us to be able to communicate and share our innermost secrets and hang-ups and hurts because that's the stuff that got us in trouble in the first place. It's like I think about you know, there are so many people in our fellowship that are the, the, the victims of abuse, you know, whether it be physical or mental or sexual or whatever. There are so many people that have been abused and they feel they have nowhere to turn. And so they will do almost anything to deal with the pain. The pain, the shame, the rejection, every bit of that. And so to be honest with you, I kind of live my life. that I, I want those people to feel like they have a friend in me. They can tell me things. Because I don't want anybody to leave, that I know to leave this earth thinking that nobody cares. You know, I've, I've lost a couple friends here in the last year. lost one to pancreatic cancer. He's one of my first friends in recovery. And for a while, we were somewhat estranged, not through any bitterness or hostilities or resentment, just life. Just life. You know, you get busy paying the mortgage and raising kids sometimes and you forget to call your friends. Doesn't mean you don't love them. But that's what happens. But in time, we began to reconnect through the glory of social media. Got a chance to see that he had uh, established himself as a as a working artist and uh, had made some incredible life decisions, but was doing well. And I'm so grateful today that even though I've lost him, that uh, we have both been able to accomplish some things in life. I've been a very successful author and writer now for the better part of two decades, and there he was, a successful author. And I began to think, you know, I remember a time... You know, that I was fresh out of jail and, uh, you know, he was sleeping, you know, sleeping on our floor when the dorms closed at Southern Miss because he was too prideful. And then here we were, you know, living in a, uh, you know, a house with no central air and heat right off campus in Hattiesburg. And to think how modest those accommodations were, but they couldn't hold our dreams. We had dreams to be something greater than we were today. And because of the fact that we were restored to sanity, we were able to kind of recapture the path. And in many ways, I think it was probably somewhat more glorious because of the pain that we had experienced. And so rather than be defined by our mistakes, we chose to do something even greater than before. I had another friend that that killed himself this past year. And uh, it was very, very painful began to ask myself, why, why wasn't I a better friend? Why didn't I reach out more? And then soon you find in time, it's not your burden to carry. But some of the thinking that he had bordered on insanity and eventually crossed over, all through mental defect and mental disease. And no matter what form of treatment they threw at him, it just seems that nothing was ever, he was never responsive to anything. There are those unfortunates. I feel privileged and honored that I was able to speak with him a couple months before his passing. I had a chance to sit and talk with him at the request of his wife. Gave him some, uh, some tips, I guess you could say. I wouldn't call it advice, but I said, listen, there's, there's three things I want you to do for me. And I gave him a list of three things. And one of those things was even though he wasn't a person in recovery, I encouraged him to write a gratitude list. I said, listen, don't just sit it on the table by your chair. I want you to get up and walk, put it on your dining room table. And anytime you think of anything that you're grateful for, you get up and go write it down on that list. Because I wanted him to realize he had some things to live for.
And so sure enough, he did it. And it was a bit of a turning point for him in many respects. And then things were better for a while. And then his mother died, and it kind of pulled him back into the abyss. That everything, all the progress we'd made, we'd lost. There were some things that we talked about that I won't share. There's some things that he was somewhat ashamed of. And as I told him then, and I think it's important to tell you now, there is nothing you can say or do that will make those who truly love you leave you. You can say, well, Steve, you don't understand. No, you don't understand. There is that little voice in our head that says, you know what, nobody could ever believe you or forgive you, but that's not true. That's absolutely not true. You know, when we're drowning, if we sit there in the, in the, the throes of our despair and we just kind of speak in a monotone tone and say, hey, listen, can you help me? Can you help me? Somebody help me. Somebody help me. You're not going to get rescued. But when you're drowning and you fear for your life, you simply scream. And that's kind of where we were. He was screaming for help at the top of his lungs, screaming for his life. For a long time, I blamed myself for, for not being more attentive, for not being you know, a better friend. I had another dear friend of mine, someone that does love me, that says, you know what? Maybe that family had one more Christmas together because of the time you spent together. Maybe because of that gratitude list. Maybe because of that visit. Maybe, just maybe, the family had one more Christmas together. And that's something when I heard it, it was almost like my higher power said, yep, yep. And so in many respects, I kind of let myself off the hook because it is kind of narcissistic thinking to think that, you know, that we can save somebody. You know, we can, I think, play a part in all that. I think God kind of plants those things in our heart. But I think being on this side of step two and kind of being restored to sanity, you can understand insanity much better. You look back in hindsight and say, you know what? I recognize insane behavior because I have exhibited insane behavior. I've been there. And when you can identify that behavior, maybe you don't repeat it yourself. So I say that to say this. If you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with any of these, uh, you, know, you know, bipolar type disorders, and there's a lot of that in our, in our community, in our fellowship, talk to somebody. There is no shame in getting help. If you had a physical illness, nobody would judge you for going to the doctor. If you have a mental illness, no one that truly loves you will judge you for going to seek professional help. How long do you want to suffer with this? Because that becomes, you know, an insanity in and of itself. You know, if you had a broken leg, you'd go to the ER. If you got shot, you'd, you'd go try, hopefully get a surgeon, right? But many of us are bleeding on the inside, and most of us bleed the most when we're alone. I only bleed when I'm alone, as Miles Kennedy once sang. And that's how it is for me. You know, when I'm, in, when I'm around other people, you know, it's easy to get caught up in moments of fellowship and that sort of stuff. But, you know, having true recovery is even when I'm alone, I know that I can handle these things because of the fact that I have the higher power. But also, too, I have been restored to sanity to understand, you know what, this is old behavior for me. 
this is not healthy for me. I need to talk to a sponsor. I need to talk to an accountability partner. I need to talk to a professional. There is no shame in any of that. And if anybody judges you for that, the shame is theirs, not yours. You have one life to live, just one. And the main person you have to be accountable to is yourself. And so at this point, you kind of have to choose, what life do I want to lead? How do I want to go through life? Do I want to go through life living a life of regret? Do I want to go through life, you know, living life kind of wondering what could be? Or do I want to live life wide open and chase happiness? I think the latter is the better alternative. And so rather than get caught up in the mire of all of this and kind of get hung up in the fact that, you know what? I've got a problem. And now that we've identified that we have a problem, let's fix it. Let's take some steps towards fixing that problem. Nobody's going to do it for you. I've shared with you guys before. I began to see life a lot differently when I realized that there was no search party being formed to save me. It was up to me. It's up to you. No one is going to rescue you. You are responsible for your life. You are responsible for the quality of your life. You're responsible for the decisions that you make. And you're also responsible for your own indecision. And maybe we just say, you know what, I just don't want anybody to think any less of me. Well, they'd rather do that than buy uh, flowers for your funeral. I can promise you there have been so many people in my life that I've lost to suicide. I've lost some to murder as well. But I began to think about the suicides that have happened in my life, and many of you have experienced that too, and we all have the same reaction. It's always like, well, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have done something. I wish they would have just told me. And so that's the thing about suicide is that we're all left here with all the questions. We're all left behind wondering, what if? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? And at the end of the day, there's only so much we can do. But everybody that loves you carries that burden forever. I just wish I would have known. And the people that truly love you, they want to know. You know what? I went through some uh, depression myself multiple times. After my dad died, I got really depressed and uh, got on some medication for a while. Eventually got off of it because I I didn't feel right on it. But at the time, it uh, it was probably good for me. But it kind of muted my emotions a little bit, good and bad. And so I feel like I was kind of going through life on autopilot. And so eventually I got off of it. But I've had some other instances in my life where I feel like that my heart and soul have been ripped from my being. And we all go through that. We are all heartbroken at times. As the good book says, the rain falls on the heads of the just and the unjust alike. We are all going to face conflict and crisis in life. Every one of us. And so when that happened to me, I got depressed. That's part of the human condition. But the way that I worked through most of it is I had the courage to tell some, some people that I knew that had my back. And so, you know what, this is eating my lunch, and I need help with this. There have been times in my life that I've been absolutely, you know, stone sober. And thought that I was spiritually fit and something happens. And then for a second you think, you know what, maybe, maybe I can't go on. Maybe I just can't live with this. But you can. You can live with it. 
And not only can you be a survivor of that, you can be an overcomer. And there is a difference. And I think that's the whole thing about being restored to sanity. There are some people that go through crisis that simply continue to live. And there are other people that go through crisis, they learn from it, and then they begin to thrive. There is a big difference, a huge difference between being a survivor and an overcomer. And I I ask you today to choose which one you would love to be. You can survive mental defect or you can overcome mental defect. That's a big part of this thing. And so this is not just an acknowledgement step. There is some work that kind of accompanies this step. And I hope that you are willing to do that work. I hope that you are willing to take the steps necessary to ensure that you put these issues behind you. There's no point having to live with this forever. There are some things in life that you never get over, you simply get on with. But there are many other things that if we address it, we talk about it, we get help for it, that you can put it behind you once and for all. That is a promise to you today. There are some things within your life, there is baggage you are carrying that you can let go of and no longer have that burden you. That's going to be it for today. I hope to be back next week. I promise to be back a little sooner now that this book is behind me. But on all those days that you feel alone, you feel that nobody understands, you're wrong. Because I am absolutely right there with you. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.